Good morning, Five Stones Church. Yeah, I'm glad you're interacting and saying hello to your neighbors. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Good, good, good. My name is Eugene, and I'm one of the elders here at Five Stones Church. And it's my, my pleasure and my privilege uh, to be able to share with you this morning. All right, so uh, we're going to continue with our Hello Jesus series. Uh, Pastor John and Pastor Alex have shared last two weeks on hope and on love. And today we're going to look at Hello Peace. And as we unpack peace, we also want to look at his nemesis, which is shame. And then we'll conclude with God's blessing of peace. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was on his second missionary journey when he was traveling to city to city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But God suddenly called him over to Macedonia, which is part of Greece. Paul, he obeyed, and he pivoted, and he crossed over the waters and went to Macedonia. In one of the cities in Macedonia, which is um, Thessalonica, some of the Jews and many of the Gentiles responded to the gospel message. But there was also a large number of unbelieving Jews who were jealous and they started a riot in the city. So the church brothers quietly sent Paul and his companion Silas away to another city uh, called Beria. So Paul's time with the Thessalonians was cut short. Later on, he writes back to the church in Thessalonica and encouraged them in their faith to respect church leadership, to live holy, to help the weak, be patient, to love one another as they face opposition, and also to eagerly await Christ's return. And Paul concluded the letter with a blessing. And let me see if I can get this. And this is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Jesus Christ, and the one who called you is faithful, and he will do it. So Paul called the church body to live in peace with one another. He blessed the church with God's peace and sanctification, that they may be complete in spirit, soul, and body. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We celebrate you as we enter into this Advent season, Lord. We are excited for what your spirit will uh, share and sh show yourself to us during this season. We ask you, Lord, to help us. Uh, we know this is a, also a busy season, and there's many things happening in our lives, Lord. And we ask your Holy Spirit to give us a peace, a peace from, from all the noise that, that distracts us, from our focus on you as we celebrate with joy of who you are. Today, Father, just ask the Holy Spirit to help each one of us, to receive your message to us. Help me as I share, and that the Holy Spirit will reveal your truth 
and your peace that each one of us can receive. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Life is full of disruption. Paul was disrupted in his missionary journey in Asia Minor when God redirected him to Greece. And his time with the Thessalonica church was also cut short because of the local riots. When we set our heart to pursue something, whether it's a major life goal, like maybe pursue uh, an education or a career or or finding a spouse or, or starting a family, we may face obstacles and roadblocks and oppositions. And that's frustrating. I know I, I, I'm kind of myopic and I like to follow plans and when that gets disrupted, and my wife would tell you that I get really frustrated when things doesn't go according to plan. But also sometimes these obstacles affect how we see ourselves, how we see our relationship with people. But some of these obstacles can be just external. It could be the economy, finances, uh, my work environment, or uh, my family priorities, things outside of us that affect us. But some of these obstacles can also come from within ourselves. How we see our relationship with people, how we see ourselves, our relationship with God. And sometimes we may be made to feel insecure when we say look over the fence and see, see how others are doing, how well they're doing compared to how we're doing. As Christians, we know that Christ has came and died on the cross for us, and we have been forgiven. But we still sometimes find ourselves lacking. We feel that we're frustrated, and we get overwhelmed. And Satan, the enemy, used these opportunities shame us to choke away our close walk with our Lord. Yes, there are things that I have done in the past that I'm not proud of, things I have said uh, in moment of anger. There's a sense of guilt. I wish I could take it back. I know I was wrong. And then I, I feel guilt. But the person on the receiving end of my comments might actually had to deal with shame because of my insensitive words. And these things are etched into my memory. So today I just want to spend a little time to talk about guilt and talk about shame. Now guilt convicts us when we have done something wrong against someone, against God, And we get this sense of deep inside us that something is not right. We're not at peace. In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 to 10, Paul said that he was actually happy that his earlier letters to the Corinthians has caused them sorrow. They felt guilty because of Paul's letter, and they repented. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, it says, Because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. God 
Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, godly sorrow tells us that we have sinned. And when we seek repentance, we experience the divine grace of God. We properly dealt with that, and we are free from that guilt, and it's finished. But shame, on the other hand, doesn't offer this kind of freedom. Reverend uh, Cheryl Howard, she wrote this really impactful mess, uh, passage here that I, I show on the screen. It says, shame is not about an act for which we seek forgiveness. It is not a conviction, but rather is a condemnation. Shame doesn't tell us that we have done something bad. It tells us that we are something bad. Guilt brings us to repentance and releases us from, to experience the joy of the Lord, the wonder of His love and the fellowship of our community. Shame imprisons us and disconnects us from other believers. Guilt say, I have done something wrong, but shame replies, hey, yes, you are a bad person, you need to hide. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. One moment, they were innocent, they were pure, they were walking in the garden in close communion with the God. The next moment, they disobey God, and they enter into this new awareness of themselves, the nakedness, the shame they needed to hide. We may not have done something wrong, and we might still feel shameful. If you grew up maybe in a critical environment, maybe your parents were very critical, your siblings or your friends, that made you feel that you don't measure up or you're not good enough. It makes you feel guilty. And over time, that guilt can slowly, slowly morph into something much uglier, which is shame. And we see the path of destruction from shame. Broken relationships, depression, illness, mental illness, or even suicide. Shame is a tool that Satan used to make us believe that you're a failure, you're incompetent, you're not complete, and you don't belong, and you really should hide. And many vulnerable people in our community, in our society, fall victim to this. It could be some women, or the poor, the disabled, the widows, children of broken family, etc. And we, when we experience shame, we just want to keep a distance from people, and we want to hide. But God wants to take that shame the weight of shame from us. You probably know, and we, John mentioned it earlier, um, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom is a common greeting. It's used like hello and goodbye. And there's a similar word in Arabic, which is shalom. Shalom comes from the Hebrew word 
with the four character, Shin, as read from right to left, Shin, Lamet, Valve, and Mim. And the Hebrew language is pictographic and it's also numeric, aside from its meaning. So there's some really interesting mes message, which we don't have time to get into about the, the, those four characters. But its primary form means wholeness. It encompasses all spheres of human wellness, welfare, safety, harmony, justice, prosperity, completeness, soundness, health, and rest. When you watch the news today, it's easy to see that there is no peace around us in this world. There's a war going on in Europe. There's hunger. There's homelessness, uh, addiction, domestic and street violence. And of course, our politician is always at each other's throat. Our natural response is obviously to, to correct social injustice. We want to eliminate poverty, uh, eliminate violence, provide resource and support, like what Deborah mentioned earlier, to help those in need, uh, restore human dignity, and generally bring peace. On an individual level, we may want to seek peace by changing our jobs if it's too stressful, or maybe take a vacation, get away, or pick up a hobby, and maybe just avoid drama in our life, well, dramatic people <laughs> in our lives. These are important, but both Christian and non-Christians both desire peace in our, in our world and in our lives. But society have made great strides in terms of making social changes. And Christian has been in the forefront in terms of building hospitals, building schools, building host, uh, providing hunger and disaster relief, and being the hands and feet of those who are in need and suffering. But these things can only bring us temporary peace. As we advocate for social change, there's going to be another cause that needs to be addressed. And if we try to escape from our situation, escape from people around us, take a vacation, well, that will only give us a temporary peace, temporary release. There's a writer, his name is Aaron DeAnthony Brown. He said, the difference in peace for a believer and a non-believer is where they acquire their peace. A non-believer is dependent on the worldly methods to find peace. They depend on themselves. They depend on the resources that they have or the people around them. But a believer finds peace not from this world but from God. Now, Jesus, before he went uh, to the cross, he spoke to his disciples. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In John 14, 2. He didn't, Jesus did not want his disciples to be, have their hearts in trouble he wants them to experience his peace before he went to the cross. Let's look at the gospel story 
of the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and her encounter with Jesus. This is recorded in Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8. Now, under the Mosaic law in Leviticus 15, a woman going through her monthly menstrual period and where there's blood involved is considered unclean. And she needs to be separated from society, from other people. And after her cycle ends, seven days after, she would then bring an offering, sacrifice to the priest, and then he would declare her clean, and then she will re-enter society. Now this woman, in this passage, she had a perpetual bleeding so basically, for the 12 years, she was perpetually unclean. And during this, maybe bef- per- or during this period, she would not be able to interact with people, maybe with the exception of some doctor. The scripture mentions that she was trying to get some doctor's help, which was, wasn't really helpful. And she had to be kept away. But maybe before the 12 years, she might have lived a normal life. She might have had a husband, may have had children. But now she's an outcast, and her husband may have divorced her. Imagine the embarrassment, the pain, the isolation eating away at her during that 12 years. She was separated, a bad medical condition, lonely. She's probably locked into a prison of shame. Now, she heard about this Jesus that's coming through. And there's a large crowd around Jesus as well. She didn't want to draw any attention to herself. She quietly sneaked up between all the people, trying not to touch anyone. She wanted to touch the helm of Jesus because she knows that the, the helm of Jesus represents his authority in healing. So she did. She managed to maneuver herself among the crowd and touched the bottom of Jesus' cloak. And the bleeding immediately stopped and she was healed. End of story? No. In Mark 5, verses 30 to 33, it says, At once Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? And then later in verse 32, it says, But Jesus just kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. Trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You can imagine this picture. Jesus was actually on on his way to heal a dying girl who is the daughter of a synagogue leader named Jairus. A large crowd assembled and followed along looking to see a miracle. And all of a sudden, Jesus stopped, turned around, and asked, Who touched me? Peter responded, 
and I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, you know, are you kidding me? Look at the crowd here, you know, this is like Times Square during New Year's Eve, and you ask, who touched you? Well, at least I think that's what Peter was implying. Jairus is probably also thinking, come on, Jesus, my daughter is dying. Let's move. Come on, let's go. Why did Jesus stop? And he kept looking around and asked who touched his cloak. Now, this woman was already healed. She stopped bleeding, but she also just wanted to hide. She doesn't want to be exposed. We don't know how long Jesus, uh, I bowed out verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. He kept waiting until this woman mustered enough strength to step out and speak. And verse 33, it says that she came with trembling with fear and fell at Jesus' feet and told the whole truth. Why embarrass this poor woman? She already lived 12 years of shame, isolation, humiliation. She's not even supposed to be in a public place. Some scholars said that she might be a Gentile, definitely unwanted, unclean in this Jewish town. And she probably touched other people during her maneuvering to reach Jesus, making them unclean. Can you imagine that some of these people might retaliate against her? But Jesus called her out from the crowd and then put her into a spotlight. Jesus did not want to shame her or to embarrass her. He wanted to give her a complete healing. Not just from the bleeding, but from her emotional shame. When her life, represented by the blood, that keep flowing out, leaking out from her, he stopped the bleeding. When she was an outcast, an unwanted, a reject, he called her here in verse 34, daughter, someone dear to him, someone who belongs. She lived a life bounded in shame, and he freed her from her physical and her emotional suffering. Then she gave a full testimony of her healing in the presence of the large crowd. And Jesus praised her publicly. He affirmed her publicly and then released her and sent her off with the blessing of peace. When we read John 3.16, we say, For God so loved the world, it is not some broad macro concept. His love for us is, is very micro. It's deeply individual, deeply personal. He loves every fiber of our being. Jesus just kept looking and looking for her until she could be found. That's the heart of our Father. He's the good, good Father. He's the one that leaves the 99 to look for the one that is lost. And he will keep looking until he or she is found. He's persistently calling out 
waiting for this particle to return home. When Jesus said in Luke 4 that he, the Father has sent him to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, he's declaring that freedom for us. A freedom from the lies of the enemy and releasing us from that oppression or shame and to bring us into his family. We are daughters, we are sons in the family of God. So this beautiful story of restoration, a freedom from shame to peace, a complete peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. So friends, do not let your circumstances, your situation keep you from reaching out and touching him, touching Jesus and experience that healing. This year uh, marked the 50th anniversary of one of the most horrific images from the Vietnam War. A photo was taken on June 8, 1972, as Vietnamese children were fleeing from their village after a South Vietnamese airplane accidentally dropped napalm bombs onto the village. The village is between Saigon and, uh, and the Cambodian border. Now, the napalm is a terrible weapon. It's a weapon of terror. It's made of flammable petrol jelly. It's very sticky, and it's it burns very hot and very slow. It burns in excess of 1,000 degrees Celsius. And it sticks to the skin as it's burned and it just sucks oxygen from everywhere. So even if you get into the water, it will still burn. This uh, Pulitzer Prize photo of that event in 1972. In the middle is the girl, the naked girl. Her name is, uh, depending on how you pronounce the Chinese name, Kim Fook Phi Tai. She suffered third-degree burn as the napalm stuck to her skin, burned off all her clothes, was burning her arms, and she was running and screaming, too hot, too hot. She later passed out, and the photographer who took that photograph took her to a local hospital. But due to the severity of the burn, she fell unconscious, and then the people at the hospital left her in the morgue, thinking that she would die. But through various interventions, she was able to be transferred, brought to a burn unit. And after about 16 surgery, and a year later, she was discharged from the hospital. But the trauma of the napalm attack did not end after she returned home. Her injury continued to require medical assistance, but the, uh, the communist government made it more difficult, more challenging to get the treatment she, she needed. She grew up isolated and embarrassed because of the photo and the scar that is in her body. She's known as a napalm girl. She re gradually recovered from her, her injury, but she felt the loneliness, the shame. She didn't have peace. And her family fell into difficult financial times, and her lowest point came when she was actually pursuing her plan to study medicine. 
then the government pulled her out from that to use her in a propaganda function because of her picture in, the, in that. That picture was published in all the newspapers back in 1972. So she carried this emotional shame and asked, why me? She struggled with the emptiness and contemplated suicide. Then one day, in, a, in the library in Saigon, uh, Ho Chi Minh City, she found a copy of the New Testament Bible. And she read John 14, 6. They said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one come to the Father except through me. This stirred her heart. It's different from her native religion, Khao Da. And she shared this in an uh, interview a couple of years ago with Focus on a Family. She said that for God, when you seek, you will find. As you seek the truth, God came to me. That, when she read the scripture, she met a Christian friend in Saigon. And her friend invited her to a Christmas service in 1982. The pastor preached on why we celebrate Christmas. A simple message that baby Jesus came to the world to bring us peace. He died on the cross for our sins. And want to, if we receive him in our hearts, we can experience that peace and that burden will be lifted away from our hearts. And that's what she said. That's exactly what she needed at that moment. And she accepted Jesus as her savior on that Christmas night. Although she said her outside circumstances did not change one bit, but inside she experienced the peace. She received a healing, a complete healing that she needed. Today, Kim, as you see on the photo on the right, uh, standing by the photo there, she's a Canadian citizen. She's a well-traveled speaker, a UNESCO peace ambassador. Um, and she, but she used her platform not only to advocate for peace and for victim of war, she also shared her faith openly so that people can find a peace in Christ. She said her scar reminds her that God was with her in the fire as napalm was exploding all around, which took some of her cousin. And her back and her arm was burning. God protected her legs so that she was able to run out from the inferno. And during that interview, she smiled graciously to John Daly at Focus and said, that, and God protected my beautiful face. <laughs> Looking back, she was very thankful for God's hands of protection, and she was purely at peace in spite of that faithful day. She found her identity in Christ, like the woman that Jesus healed. She was able to go in peace and be free from her suffering. Let's go back to the passage from Paul earlier. Say, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. What's the significance of these words? Of this? You know, Paul and the other apostles, they often 
include a, a blessing at the beginning or at the end of the letters in the books of, of, the, of the New Testament. And often I kind of just glance over them and yeah, they're nice salutations. But I think today, I think we want to really look into the power of blessing in the Bible. We remember Abraham, or God blessed Abraham in Genesis 12, saying that he'll make him into a great nation. Isaac continued his fatherly blessing to his two sons in Genesis 27. Although the younger one, Jacob, did a switcheroo on his brother Esau. And when Isaac realized that he passed the inheritance blessing to the younger son, he could not reverse that. The blessing was already bestowed. Later on, Jacob was blessed his 12 sons, which formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Receiving a blessing from a father was a high honor. And losing a blessing is like a curse. Esau traded his birthright, his blessing, for a bowl of lentil soup. And it says in Genesis 25th that after he drank or ate the soup, Esau despised his birthright in Genesis 25:34. Now an Old Testament blessing from a father to his son includes inheritance, prophetic words, is invaluable and is sought, highly sought after. Esau despised it. But Jacob valued it and got attained that. In the Torah, in the book of Moses, God actually instructed Aaron and Aaron's son, which is the priestly line, on how to bless the Israelites, how to bless the children of Israel. I'm so glad that Pastor Andrew last week concluded our service with this priestly benediction recorded in number 6, verses 24 to 27. This is called an Aaronic blessing. It's called Bracha, if I pronounce it correctly, probably not in Hebrew. And this is the Tree of Life version. It says, May Adonai, the Lord, bless you and keep you. May Adonai make his face shine upon you and show you his favor May Adonai lift up his face toward you and give you peace. In this way, the priests, or they, or the priests, are to put my name on the people of Israel so that they, I will bless them. Our father longed to bless his children. He specifically instructed the priests how they are to bless his children, the children of Israel at the time. This blessing continues throughout the traditional. It was, they continue this blessing during Jesus' time and is practiced today by, by the Jews in the, in the synagogues at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. I, last week I was watching the, the Netflix documentary uh, called Show Me the Father. Uh, it's produced by the Hendrick Brothers. The final segment shows the, the real-life video footage of each of the Hendrix brothers' wedding. 
And during the ceremony, when the, the groom and the bride were standing there and the father standing behind the altar, he pronounced a formal public blessing to his son. He did that for each one of the son's wedding. Now, it wasn't just some random nice words. Say, son, I hope you do well in your marriage, live well. No, the father prayerfully prepared the blessing for months before the wedding. And he blessed them with affirmation and bestowed this upon his son and the bride in front of the altar publicly. He would say, I love you, and I declare that you are beloved. I see you as a man of integrity. I bless you. I see sincere in every one of your good work. You'll be a spiritual leader to your sons and your family, your wives. And you will proclaim the gospel with great joy. And then he went on and on. And then he closed with the ironic blessing. I like to, well, he didn't do it like the priest. The priest would do, you know, the uh, that with a hand blessing. So each son walked away from the altar complete. They walk away with the the bride, but they were filled with the blessing of the father. They were in complete peace. Pastor Tony Evans summarized it this way. The blessing was a covenantal transfer of the favor of God to each of the child. A passing of divine favor, and every father is responsible for the transfer of that blessing. When Jesus reappeared to his disciple after his his resurrection, in his glorified body, he said to them, first, peace be with you, shalom, alaikum. This is not a simply a greeting, but a blessing to his very tired and weary disciples. He blessed them in the fullness and completeness of his grace, his peace. Later, just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave them the his disciple, the Great Commission. And it says in Luke 24, 50 to 51, it says, when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted his hand and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up in heaven. Most scholars said that he would have given his disciple the ironic blessing before he left. His last word for his disciple was to receive this peace. That's the heart of our Father. He wants to restore us. He loves us. He desires to release us from our shame and bless us with his peace, a transfer of fatherly favor to his children. As Paul blessed the Thessalonian to sanctify the church through and through in spirit, soul, and body. He proclaimed a blessing of completeness, wholeness, and peace. 
So during this event season, we often read Isaiah 9, 67. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There's no end to his peace. It's an everlasting peace. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. He's also our source of peace. Where he's not present, where he's not welcome, there can never be a lasting peace. He came to this world to die on the cross for our sins. He carried our shame, our sins, as he was stripped, he was beaten, he was flogged, spat on, as he was nailed to the cross. His love for us surpassed all understanding. So if we feel shame and we want to hide, we can we can run to Jesus, open our hearts to Him, let Him know that you want to have His peace. Let Him restore you. Like David wrote in Psalm 32, 7, it said, You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. He is our hiding place. If we have Christ as our Lord and Savior. We have a new identity as children of a loving God. We are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are His special possession. We can receive His peace. Let's ask the worship team to come back up, and I'll close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your love that come down on Christmas. We thank you for the peace you bring to us in our lives, personally, in every aspect of our inner being, Lord. We know that you, you suffer unimaginable shame and pain as you carry our sins on the cross, as you die for our sins. We know you suffer unimaginable pain as you were isolated from the Father during the time when you were on the cross, Lord. We thank you for what you have done on the cross for us, Lord. We thank you for our victory over death. We are justified, justified by our faith in you, Lord. So we receive your peace, a reconciliation to you, the people around us, and within ourselves. Let your peace wash away every aspect of shame in our, in our lives, Lord, that we, we can testify to the goodness of who you are, Lord. Father, we, we want your blessing. We want the transfer of your confidence covenantal favor in our lives, Lord. Help us to really strive and, and eager and hunger for that blessing of you, Lord. We know we don't deserve it, but you, 
are the gracious and loving Father that shower us with your peace that we do not need to hide. I just want to bless our family here at Five Stone that the Lord may bless you and keep you that he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. And that reminder of what Jesus brings, that the peace that Jesus brings is that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That Jesus died on the cross to scorn shame. That the whole reason that peace comes is so that shame cannot exist. And so with the message that Eugene brought today, it's a reminder for us that the shame that we live in does not belong, but the peace that God brings is where, what, what, what comes that brings us together. And so church, I just want to remind you of what God has for you. As we look towards this Christmas season of, of when Jesus is coming into the earth and the, his purpose, his purpose is to bring this into earth, to bring this into your life. That all of this is for you. That all of this, everything that he's done is for you. That Jesus loves you that much. That Jesus cares for you that much. That there's no shame, there's no condemnation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are, and Lord, for this reminder and for this message that we've heard today. Lord, that your peace comes and shame goes away. So, Father God, as a church, may you remind us of who we are. And Lord, may your peace that transcends all understanding guard our hearts and our mind in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.